You're listening to Untextbook. This is a history podcast for the future that gives young people like us agency and voice in our education. I'm your host, Gabe Hostin. We're back with another episode from our archive in honor of Black History Month, my favorite month. This week, we're talking about the Black women who have shaped history, but have been largely written out of our history textbooks. Sophia Andrews produced this episode. She was a founding member of Untextbooked, and this was our podcast's third episode. For real, first season, third episode ever. I hope you learned something new. Let's get into it. Why is it so common for history to feel like it's written for someone else? Reading most textbooks, you could be forgiven for thinking that the only people who made a difference in the world were rich white men with bloodlust. This is not only superficial, it's also just inaccurate. Untextbook producer Sophia Andrews realized she wasn't getting the full story when she started her senior year of high school. Yeah, so my history class, I was the only Black student in the class. So that was just a really unique perspective, kind of being like the token Black girl in the class. And we were discussing things that directly related to me and my ancestors. And so we really only discussed Black history during Black History Month when it was kind of required. And when we did discuss it, it wasn't in depth. And when it was discussed, it was kind of taught in a way that minimized the importance of our history. So when we did discuss slavery, for instance, it was the subject of, oh, there were Irish slaves that were brought in the U.S. as well, or, oh, there was slavery that was happening in Africa at the same time. So it minimized what really happened. Um, So I think for me, that made me want to learn even more about Black history and the history of people of color in this nation. Sophia talked about her frustrating history class with her mom, who encouraged her to seek out different sources. So she started doing her own research. And that's when she came across the work of Mickey Kendall, Mickey Kendall is a Black woman, an Army veteran, and a cultural commentator. She writes in many genres. All of it, in some way, is about her unapologetic views on race and gender, particularly the whiteness of feminism. I found the book during this time of the pandemic and everything that's been going on. I've just been looking for different books to read and just constantly keep myself educated while I'm at home. And I went to a Barnes and Noble and I found the book Hood Feminism, which was written by Mickey Kendall. And then while I was reading that, I saw that she'd written another book, Amazon's Abolitionists and Activists. And then I got that one as well and then just fell in love with it. Amazon's Abolitionists and Activists is not a normal history book. It's a beautifully illustrated graphic novel about the history of women's rights. The story is guided by an artificial intelligence who takes a group of young women on an adventure through time. The AI shows them stories about the women of history who were hugely important, but are rarely discussed. After the break, Sophia Andrews interviews Mickey Kendall about the forgotten women of the civil rights movement and about how sugarcoating history does a disservice to children. I'm Gabe Hostin, and this is Untextbooked. Textbooked. 
Hello. Hi. Hi. So before we like jump into everything, um, I added like a little bit of information about myself into the email, but just to give you some more, um, like I said, I'm 18 years old. I just graduated from high school and I'll be going off to college this fall in DC, um, which I'm really excited about. Um, and this project that we're working on is a really cool podcast project called Untextbook. Um, and it's 15 youth from around the US and it's a for youth by youth podcast that reshapes how we were taught history. Because I know for me personally, how I was taught history was very very terrible. Um, it was taught very one-sided. Um, and if it wasn't for my own research and that own curiosity, I wouldn't have fallen in love with it how I am now or how I have now. So I think that this is such a great way for my peers out there that are really into history but weren't taught it how we should have been taught it. Um, it's a great resource for them. So I just want to say thank you so much for you know your book and just allowing me to talk to you today and just discuss that with us on the podcast. Thank you for having me on. Um, I have to say that the book is basically the book that I wanted when I was a kid and didn't know it because I thought history was boring until college, right? If you're really lucky when you're in college, you get to take a dope history class with a professor that just completely gets into your brain and gets you interested in the story of humanity. But unfortunately, yes, kindergarten through 12th grade, depending upon where you go to school, you occasionally have a good month or two, but basically you learn by rote the exact same dates over and over again. I can still tell you that the Battle of Hastings was in 1066. I do not at all know why that matters. I have no idea because I had to memorize the date and no context for it at all. And I don't know that that's an, as an, as an adult who's been doing this for a while. I have to say that memorizing the dates not actually useful in your daily life. What has been much more useful for me has been learning all of the context for dates, which unfortunately didn't happen in the class where I learned about the Battle of Hastings. So, yeah. Yeah, that's so true because for me, it just really hit home because my sister is nine years old and she's one of my best friends. And as I'm getting ready to head out for college, we've been able to read this book together and go over everything. And it's just so like wonderful to show her all the women that look like her that are just these wonderful trailblazers that she's not learning about. Even she's struggling and going into fifth grade now with her history classes. So yeah, so I totally, I totally get that with all those dates. And so I just want to say thank you for writing such an impactful book that I can share with my sister and my 17 year old brother who loves history. He picks up the book and reads it all the time and we're just all sharing it and passing it around. So I just think it's really wonderful. And so I think, you know, for this podcast episode too, I really wanted to just discuss you know, the women, specifically women of color who have made an impact throughout our history and aren't really discussed in our textbooks and in our classrooms. And I think one story that really stood out to me and stood out to my sister was Claudette Colvin's story. And it's one that is not known nearly enough and it should be. And can you tell us a little bit about her and her impact and why she isn't really as well known as Rosa Parks? So Claudette Colvin was she was a pioneer of the 1950s, not 60s, 50s civil rights movement. Um, March 2nd, 1955, she was arrested for refusing to give up her seat to a white woman on a crowded bus. This was nine months before the Rosa Parks incident. And she would go on to be one of the first, one of the five claims in the first federal case filed to challenge segregation in the city of Montgomery, Alabama. Eventually, they did decide that bus segregation was unconstitutional 
But what was interesting was that even though she testified she was the original person to refuse to give up her seat, movement leaders decided that she would not be a good example to hold up because she was an unmarried, she was going to be an unmarried mother. And also, frankly, because she was darker skinned. And if I remember correctly about Claudette Coven um, at the time, I think they even decided her speech patterns weren't educated enough sounding. Like it was a lot of respectability politics piled on to her um, in a way that was odd because they were supportive, but also judgmental. And so what ends up happening is that it, Rosa Parks does literally almost exactly the same thing. Um, it was a planned moment as opposed to a, a spontaneous one, which is something else people often forget. And Rosa Parks gets famous and gets well known for, oddly enough, what is actually a footnote in her career in other respects. And she was held up simply because she was older, soft-spoken. She could, in fact, be the least threatening image of a Black person who has been mistreated. It was a deliberate choice. And in some respects, I understand why they did it. But in others, it meant that we then get a version of history that makes it seem like only respectable older black people did anything. When in fact, it was a pregnant teenage girl. It was a pregnant teenage girl who spontaneously, without as much foreplanning, not to say that she didn't think about what she did in the moment, but she was like, this is ridiculous. Right. And sometimes the moments that we see in history where things happen are moments where someone is spontaneously fed up and then it sparks an organized response to oppression. But this significant moment in history that we are all taught in school, she's erased from it. And it's one of those things where I'm not knocking Rosa Parks for it. But the way that we teach history means that we don't get the full story. We also, side note, don't get the full story of Rosa Parks and her work against sexual violence that predates her and the bus boycott. Because, again, people decided that wasn't respectable enough. And so when we then all these years later are talking about it, if you are not a girl who is exactly in the right mold, you could come away from history thinking that no one who was like you ever did anything, right? The civil rights movement gets way more interesting than the handful of marches that we are sort of taught about. And like, you know, because it, it can almost seem, I don't know if they've gotten better about this. I assume they have not. But it can almost seem like slavery ended. Black people went into some kind of a bubble. They reappeared just in time for the bus boycott because Martin Luther King was born. And then the next thing you know, we no longer had oppression. And that's not at all what happened. That's so true. And going back to Claudette Colvin and her story is as a young person, she was spontaneous. And she, like you said, she lit that spark. And it was that spark that really started that movement. Right. She literally stuck it out. And so in uh, May of uh, 2018, she was honored with a congressional certificate for her service to America, basically. And I'm so glad that happened while she was alive and not posthumously. She never backed down. She never gave up, essentially. And even when she was erased and all the credit was given to Rosa Parks, you know, that's the kind of thing that might make you decide that you're never going to do anything else. And in fact, she went on with her life. She had her child. She continued to 
protests against segregation, she got a job and as a single parent raised her children. And I can't think of anything more noble in a way than to know that at 15, she was making the right decisions for everyone's freedom, even if other people weren't willing to support her in the ways that they should have. Side note, respectability will not save us. It has not saved us. They put on suits and they wore nice dresses and there were still dogs and water hoses and people were still lynched. So let's be clear. I want to make sure that listeners understand there is not a point in Black American history where there was a right way for us to fight for our rights, right? The same voices that are kinds of voices that complain now about Colin Kaepernick kneeling, um, they didn't like Martin Luther King. They didn't like the civil rights movement. They thought the people should be more patient. The decisions that you make in this historical moment if you ever think to yourself, well, if it were me in 1955, I would have. What are you doing now? Because that's what you probably would have done in 1955. Yeah. And I like what you say when you talk about how there isn't a right way. And I think that that's just such a powerful statement because there really isn't. Like we take a knee, we protest, we peacefully protest, we don't. You do so many things, but they're never satisfied. And so I think that that's so true. And even as we look back on movements that were led by, you know, women of color and movements that had women like the one with Claudette Colvin that were at the front of that, that were doing the work yet didn't get the credit for it. Do you see some of that today? Do you see any similarities between movements that are being run by women of color today and movements back in our past and in our history that were also led by women of color. I'm going to point out that when we're talking about things like Black Lives Matter, increasingly the women who first use the term, women who are often on the street here and have been on the streets for years are less and less the faces of that movement, right? And, and in fact, it's gotten oddly focused on young Black men in a way that it would make you think that young black women and older black women, black women, period, aren't at risk from the same violence that is being protested. When in actuality, as we know from Rakia Boyd and Breonna Taylor and, and Sandra Bland and so many other voices, that everyone is at risk when we're talking about oppression. We should know that when we're talking about black non-binary, gender non-conforming and trans lives, Many of the people who were fighting for freedom fell into communities, fell into the LGBTQ plus community, right? So whether we're talking about Stonewall, the civil rights movement or right now, everyone has been fighting, but very specifically, it has been women and gender non-conforming people who have been at the forefront of these movements, often people who were not particularly respectable by outside standards, right? They don't have exactly the right appearance. They don't dress or speak the correct way, whatever that is. I don't either, so I'll, you know, I've never figured out the magic box. But when you look at the work that they're doing, everyone benefits from it, even if they don't respect the people who are doing that work as much as they should. Yeah. And that's so true. You know, we all benefit from the work that they have put in, whether we realize it or not. 
And I think that's why it's so important for people like my younger sister who are growing up that they look back and they read about the women that put in the work and those that are have been doing this work since day one. And I love how in the one section, um, in the one chapter, when it talked about the Women's Rights Convention, one of the students said, oh, so this benefited all women. And the AI that's guiding them was like, not quite, like not, not really. And we're going to talk about that. So can you sort of like talk about movements that seem to look like they are for all women, but they actually really work towards the advancement of just white women or just one type of woman? So one of the things I have a second book called Hood Feminism, where I really dig into this, but it's not a graphic. It's 200 and some odd pages of just text. And not that I don't think you should read it. I'm just going to say that as a I, I'm actually reading it with my mom right now. We just started. Oh. So, yes. Yay. Um, and so one of the things that happens within feminism and the women's rights movement in America and uh, the UK is that several of the rights on deck, such as the right to go to work and equal pay and that kind of a thing, theoretically would benefit everyone. In execution, what has happened and what we're, we've seen with a lot of the like girl boss, girl power rhetoric has been that white women have become the primary beneficiaries of affirmative action. White women have gotten closest to equal pay. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes when white women have gotten into power to become CEOs, um, and we see this with everything from Theranos to Melissa uh, Meyer, the, the Yahoo CEO, who withdrew from her employees certain benefits that she kept for herself, right? She turns a part of her office into a nursery, but they can't work from home when, and keep an eye on their children, things like that. Once white women have gotten power, it has not necessarily translated to equality for other groups. We tend to see, especially in mainstream feminism, an expectation that some women and their concerns, their needs can wait. And the expectation is not, curiously enough, that the women with the most can wait. It's that the women with the least can wait. It's that the communities that those women belong to can wait the longest. And unfortunately, that has not worked out. And we're seeing that play out right now um, with COVID because many of the folks that we are saying now, oh, we rely on their heroes. We need our frontline workers. They don't make a wage that lets them afford rent in any U.S. city. What we're really saying is that we don't care that poor women are suffering. And we should. We should absolutely be making sure that people who have less money, people who have less access to medical care and education and all of these things, both inside the U.S. and the other Western countries and outside, right? Because we like a savior narrative more than we like admitting that our own house is dirty. What advice then would you give to women that want to be inclusive and want to be intersectional in their approach to making sure that they understand how to actually help instead of hurt? So I would say, first of all, ask questions before you jump in with both hands to do something. Ask questions because the people who are facing the problem, they have solutions, but they don't have resources. So be, being a resource sometimes means that you don't get to be the leader or the hero. It just means you get to help someone else accomplish their goal. And then you also have to be willing, when it's inconvenient and uncomfortable, to speak up when you're in rooms where perhaps the people who don't look like you are not present, but discussions are being had about them. 
you have to be willing to tell everyone from Aunt Susan and the raisins in her potato salad that uh, racism is wrong to when you're in the meeting at work and they're talking about hiring someone and they say, well, you know, I'm just not sure that hair and they could be talking about braids. They could be talking about an Afro. You, you pick your poison. Not sure that hair is going to look professional enough. You need to be willing to say as the person with the socially approved hair in the room, what's unprofessional about it? Why would you think that, you know, and especially now that crown acts, which are laws against discrimination based on hair texture are coming into play in so many U S states, you need to be willing to say, this is not, this is discrimination, right? Sometimes it is as simple as not helping the oppression move itself along unchecked. Sometimes it's as complicated as saying, Oh, I really am looking for an ego stroke here. And that's maybe not what these folks need. And I should ask them what they need and then do that thing. Right. Even if I think I know better than they do, let's do the thing they want to do. Because fun fact, whenever you think you've got a great idea for how someone else should respond to oppression, they've probably already done it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so true. And I like how you talked about having to be uncomfortable because that's so true. You know, we have to, if we are going to do the work and put in the work, we have to be okay with humbling ourselves and saying, you know, I'm okay with taking a step back and maybe not being, you know, at the front of this or being the face of this. And I have to be okay with that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, following on that topic of being uncomfortable, um, in your book, you write about a lot of issues that our schools tend to shy away from and topics that aren't really discussed or talked about. So how are you able to write about these like really tough issues, but make them so approachable for all ages? Like I'm able to talk to my sister and talk through with her at nine years old and still understand things at 18 years old. So I'm going to say this as nicely as I can. Um, Schools sometimes like to pretend that kids don't experience reality. And as a result of that, they then shy away. They make it super overcomplicated, right? Oh, we can't talk about gender. We can't talk about sexual assault. We can't talk about, even though their students are likely, unfortunately, experiencing a lot of these obstacles and a lot of these traumas. Um, Adults are sometimes afraid to be honest with kids. I've always tried to have honest conversations, even when, Yes, you're going to be uncomfortable. Sometimes you really wish you didn't have to have that discussion because the world is not as kind to children as adults like to pretend that it is. Sometimes adults want to pretend that kids don't know anything, haven't heard anything, and that they've created this perfect bubble around young people. And in execution, all that happens is that some young people are completely unprepared and others are learning from their friends how to manage certain issues. And still others end up becoming the friend who has to tell everybody else what's going on, right? And I I feel like we put too much on the streetwise kids who get streetwise because no one's protecting them, right? And we expect them not only to get through whatever is happening to them, but then tacitly adults expect them to be that resource, to do that explaining, and then we'll judge them. On top of all of that, we circle back to Claudette Colvin with this, right? She's judged for being pregnant. The adult man who is believed to be the father of her child is not judged, despite the fact that the supposition at the time was that he was married. 
So who's really responsible here? The 15-year-old girl or the married adult man who was preying on that 15-year-old girl, right? He gets no shaming. She gets the shame and she doesn't get as much support, even though she goes on to fight this case while pregnant. So I want to be honest, you know, as, as a kid who kind of went through some things, despite other people's, I won't say best efforts, but despite some efforts, we'll say that. There was often an expectation that kids are ignorant of what is happening in the world, but also what is happening in their homes, what is happening to their friends. And I don't know you and your family personally, it sounds like it's really great, but I would bet you have at least one friend who you and other people are often concerned about because of things happening in their life that, and that that concern started early, maybe middle school, maybe before middle school. And adults have said, well, you know, you just don't, you know, everything's fine. She's overreacting or he's overreacting, they're overreacting, whatever. And meanwhile, that friend is counting down the days till they're 18 and can get out of that situation that they're in, right? And I would bet your house is a safe place sometimes that friend comes to. Maybe that friend does not have the safe space they're used to, right? And I know that you are probably doing, you and others are probably doing whatever you can to support that friend. I wanted this book to be for kids like you, but also for that friend, because sometimes I was that friend. So I want to be here for as many people as I can, because if we continue to say, oh, well, only these kinds of people contribute, the kids who are hearing at home that they are worth less because they are not one of those kinds of people will think, A, I have nothing to contribute, and B, I'm never going to amount to anything. And none of that is true. You do not have to be a perfect person. You don't have to be a respectable person to be valuable. And you do not have to fit whatever TV mold, whatever narrative you're being fed, to be someone who can achieve amazing things. So that's why I'm really, really honest, because I want the girls who didn't have what you have. I want the people who didn't have what you have to be able to open a book and see themselves. Yeah. And I like how you said they're not perfect too. And I kind of want to go back and touch on that because at least how I was taught a lot of the historical figures that we looked back on, it was, oh, they're so great and that they don't have any flaws at all, which is totally not true. Um, so can you talk a little bit on that about these historical figures that actually do have flaws and they're not all perfect? None of us, none of us are perfect. We all have moments where the amazing thing we did is mirrored by the time we were mean to our sister or we talked back to our mom or we were impatient with someone when we should have been patient. Because fundamentally flawed humans are the story of humanity. We're all capable of doing more than we think we are. But we should never think that that means we have to be superhuman. Yeah. Um, looking forward and looking at our future, do you think we'll ever get to a place where our history books and our textbooks are sharing stories of all people and not just one side of history? I think we are headed in that direction. Um, it is much easier to convey a nuanced history when you are using a text that is both visual and literary 
because what happens is that for people who will sometimes be not good readers and not being a good reader is not the same as not being a person who is smart or not being a person who wants to learn. It just means that you struggle with the arbitrary symbols we have made up to represent these concepts. It is easier for them to get involved in history when it's visually engaging. It is easier for people, even people who are good readers, but who might think of history as boring because there's only so many dates you could read when it's a story that draws you in. And I think we are headed towards a place, fingers crossed, knock on wood, that we will see much more of this being used in classrooms. We will see many more books that tell us the stories, show us the stories of these historical figures and fill in the spaces, right? Because you would never know about Japanese internment camps in the US or what happened to sort of black soldiers after World War II if it weren't for the people who kept telling that history, even if it didn't make it to a standard textbook. Writing these things down, illustrating these things is sometimes the best way to share history with the next generation. Because that was my goal, was to make it something that multi-generational and that people would want to read again. And so I wanted this to be a book where people could sip at it and go back to it, sip and go back. And I think that we are seeing more books that way that support being able to get information and then really think about it and really take it on board before you move on to the next thing. What do you think are some of the takeaways that we can, you know, have now, especially with everything going on in the world, just some of the themes that can really relate to now? Um, I'm going to say a couple things that stuck out to me and still stick out to me is how often having basic needs met made things easier, made history change. Things could be so much worse in this pandemic than they are, but because of labor movements in the early you know, 1900s on down through fighting for women to have the right to choose and access to medical care that was catering to different bodies to making sure people had enough food, to making sure housing protections, fair housing was an, an, on the table, it has meant that even in our perfectly imperfect system, we are not in the situation we could have been where massive poverty could have led to much more devastation, where it could have led to many more deaths. And that's not to say that the deaths that are happening should be happening. It's absolutely appalling what is happening. But looking at it across historical trajectory, you know, looking at the, the, the plague and other major pandemics and epidemics, we are not as bad off as we could be. And we're not as bad off as we could be because of those fights for basic needs to be met. And I think it's really important to think in terms of community. And I think the theme that for me that was most important was to see how often a crisis is averted because we work together. If we create a system and live in a system that takes care of everyone then when the bad things that we cannot control show up, like COVID, we are better prepared to deal with them. And things just don't, it, it's not the apocalypse unless we make it one. And we don't have to make it the apocalypse. We never have to make it the apocalypse. We can always avert it by working together and taking care of each other. Do you have any, like, I know there's going to be a lot of young girls listening to this. Um, do you have any advice specifically towards um, young, you know, black and brown girls that are going to be listening to this episode on what they can do to, you know, really get involved and learn more about their history? So aside from reading my book, no, 
I, I would actually say talk to your elders, talk to the women in your family, talk to the people in your family, really, not just the women. Ask questions about their childhood. Some really cool historical moments live in your families. Some really amazing photos, um, memories, you know, talk to your community, talk to the elders in your community and work with whether it's your local public library, historical society, you know, whatever, to try to archive that information. A lot of things that we know about the lives of hidden hidden historical figures comes not from the mainstream books that were written at the time, but from their letters from the their family members, from their diaries. And sometimes it is as simple as preserving the history until you can write about it. And so I think especially for people who want to know more, who are really curious about what happened when, whenever possible, talk to someone who was there. Talk to someone who lived through that time period. Because right now, history is happening, right? And be willing, because in 20 years, someone will be asking you questions. Be willing to talk about where you were in 2020 when the pandemic hit and what was going on and what was going through your head. And also write things down record them, right? TikTok, YouTube, pick your poison. But talk about your life. Talk about what was going on. Give the future insight into what was happening in the past because we are doomed to repeat the history that we forget or that we don't learn. Definitely. And I'm also going to add, get the book too, because you will learn so much and it's such a great read and it's a really great investment. So I tell you to do it. Um, so where can people find you? Can you tell us the name of the book? I don't even know if I mentioned it. Um, oh, the name of the book is Amazon's Abolitionists and Activists by Mickey Kendall. It is available wherever books are sold. My other book is Hood Feminism, also by Mickey Kendall, available wherever books are sold. They're both Penguin Random House publica- pub- as, as my publisher. You can find me on Twitter at Carnithia, K-A-R-N-Y-T-H-I-A. Actually, that name will help you find me almost anywhere. That is what I often use as my handle online. But I also want to make sure that, you know, for folks who maybe are not quite ready for my long feminist critique, that they know that I wrote a book for everybody um, so that you can kind of delve in and know the history that informs everything else I'm talking about all the time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. This was a lot of fun. You're a great interviewer. Thank you. Keep doing the things. (laughs) Go to class. Go to class. I will. Thank you. Follow on Textbook on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. If you like the show, write us a review. We love to know what you think of Untextbooked. For behind-the-scenes content, follow us on Instagram at Untextbooked. I'm your host, Gabe Hostin.